0: Amen to that. The day is coming and uh, no one will be able to stop it. It'll be at God the Father's bidding that God the Son will dismount the throne of heaven and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day that song will be more true than we have ever imagined. Today's sermon text is found in Hebrews chapter 12 and I invite you to find That spot in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to dance again in verses 1 and 2. If you're just joining us, this is the third week in a row that we've been in these two verses and God willing, we will give another three weeks to look at them. Today our aim is to look at Christ. That's our aim. If your soul sees Christ, then today's prayer has been answered. That's why we're here. That's why we gather. We're not playing church games. We're here to meet in the power and grace of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Redeemer, God's own Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Today's focus will be to zero in on the unparalleled ministry of Jesus. He does something that no one else could do. We want to look at Christ in a particular way. We, we aim to see Him, but we aim to see Him specifically. In His great and glorious person and in His gracious offices. Who He is and what He does. And today's unparalleled majesty of Christ that we will consider is that He is both able to accomplish and apply something that no one else would ever have been competent to do. Before we read the text, I want to put a picture in your mind. The picture is, not you, but we are one big, dried, brittled sponge. We set out in the noonday sun for weeks on end, and if you come and thump us, we fracture. Fracture. And I want you to imagine that we take our collective single sponge and we plunge it down into the bottomless depths of the Pacific Ocean and we let it just take in all that it could contain. That's our goal today. That's one picture. We go down into the depths of a phrase in Hebrews chapter 12 that tells us something about the majesty of the mediator, Jesus. He's the bucket... We're the sponge. The second image I want to give you before we read the text is something like a vertical conveyor belt. It's the water wheel at the mill that grabs the water and takes it up, or the belt that takes the item up to the top shelf. But the image is this, I want you to think of not only that sponge going down into the bucket, but that God himself has put an unbreakable bar in the middle of it. And everything we see of Christ, we're to take right into the throne room. Or be taken right into the throne room by the power of the Holy Spirit. So in today's sermon, instead of a concert of prayer at the end of the sermon, where we try to pray home and ask the Spirit to apply the things that we consider in the text, we're actually going to sprinkle the concerts of prayer along through the sermon. After the first point, dipping our sponge in the bucket, The Spirit by the conveyor belt taking us into heaven. We're going to ask that three or four people, five people, pray home that particular point. Ask for the Spirit to apply that particular truth to our souls. So I already want you to prepare to stand and pray after each point. We'll have three or four or five people pray. We've already got a couple of microphones available. Those brothers with the microphones will go to whomever is standing after a handful of people pray. We'll resume with our second point and so forth, even concluding the sermon with yet another concert of prayer. I hope that's clear enough. Join me in Hebrews chapter 12 as we hear the word of the living God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Join me again as we ask for God's blessing Father, our prayer is simple and it is so profound that there's no way it could be accomplished unless you do it. And in that way, we'll know with certainty if you've answered our prayer. We ask that you would fascinate us as much with the Lord Jesus Christ as you are. And we ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I've said that this six-part series, six weeks in a row on Hebrews 12, 1, and 2, which for those of you who are just joining us, we started our journey in Hebrews in 2009, and we finally made it to chapter 12. Um, the theme of the book is looking unto Jesus, and that comes right out, <coughs> pardon me, right out of verse 2. But the theme of this little series, six parts in these two verses, which is the key paragraph of the whole book, the theme of this little six-parter is that we are to gladly rid our lives of anything and everything that hinders us from a Jesus-focused, gospel-purchased lifestyle. Focused on Christ, one at Calvary. If we can live in a way that didn't require Jesus to die on a cross, there's something deficient about the way of our life. If uh, I roll myself out of the bed in the morning, and stumble into the kitchen where the coffee pot is, I see every day the same sign. And I've prayed that I'll never get numb to it. Hanging right over the coffee pot is St. Ignatius's quote, bishop in the early church, discipled by John, who was discipled by Jesus. Jesus, John, Ignatius. There's a quote from Ignatius hanging in my kitchen that says, many of you are familiar with it now. Apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. My prayer every stumbling, stammering morning is God make that true of my life. Apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. That's the way people talked who were discipled by people that Jesus discipled. Jesus disciples John. John disciples Ignatius. Ignatius says, what John taught me is that Jesus Christ Himself is the epicenter of the Christian life. So I say again, if you can live a Christian life apart from the centrality of Christ, then it's not biblical Christianity. It's a figment of our imagination at best. But being Christ-centered does not save us. Lord, help me to say this more clearly. I've tried for three weeks in a row. Being Christ-centered does not save you. It is the evidence that Jesus has saved you. We believe what Theodore Menard said, the French theologian, only three words looking unto Jesus. But in those three words is the whole secret of life. We believe that here. We believe that the only Savior is Christ Jesus who died as our sinless substitute because of our sins. We believe that God proved that Christ and Him alone, conspiring with the purposes of the Triune God, that Jesus alone can save sinners, And God proved that by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. You must have Christ if you will be saved. We also believe that that salvation, Christ purchased, Spirit applied, God planned. That salvation for time and eternity will reveal itself in your soul being riveted to Jesus Christ. Or to use the language from Hebrews chapter 2, Moored like a boat to a dock on a tumultuous sea, the boat of your life being moored to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 uses that picture. The person of Jesus and the work of the gospel, as one of the old preachers put it, is the sum of all saving knowledge. This is the third of six sermons on this key paragraph. Part one, one, we looked at the first phrase of verse two, looking unto Jesus. We said that that's the theme of the book of Hebrews, which is why that's the title of our six year long series, looking unto Jesus. It's not only the theme of the book of Hebrews, but I tried to demonstrate in that sermon that it's also the theme of the whole Bible. And not only the theme of the whole Bible, it's the theme of the whole Christian life and not only the earthly Christian life, but it is the theme of heaven. Jesus Christ is heaven's favorite. If you're not fascinated with Christ, which is why I prayed what I prayed a moment ago, heaven would be hell to you. Because He is the dazzling center of heaven. Looking unto Jesus. Part 1. Last week we looked at run the race. Verse 1. Who else is running? From verse 1 we saw not only the saints from Hebrews 11, but all Christians in all times, in all places. All true Christians have had Christ Himself at the center of their Christianity. Anybody else is simply not a Christian. How then do we prepare to run that race? We said last week, laying aside every weight and every sin. The sinful things, thus saith the Lord, crystal clear. You can't carry in your hand to Jesus at the finish line the things that Jesus died to set you free from. We will not be sinless on this side of eternity. But the difference between a real Christian and a non-Christian, even some who profess that they are one, the difference between a real Christian and a non-Christian is not that we don't have sin, but that we hate it. And we don't want any more of it. But we're not only called to lay aside the weight, uh, pardon me, the sin, but also the weight. The amoral things. What may be okay for this one, may not be okay for this one. And vice versa. You need to apply biblical wisdom to your life. The Christian liberties are not for you to exploit and take advantage of the so called lordship of Jesus and the freedoms that he's provided for us, but they're purchased for us the Christian freedoms. 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 12, we could go to Romans 14. Those freedoms, those liberties are purchased for us so that we can live the less shackled life in our hot pursuit of Christ. We also saw last week how to keep the pace. Patience, perseverance, endurance. How do you know you're in the race? How do you know you're a real Christian? Not because you prayed a prayer when you were seven. Not because you got baptized when you were 12. Not because your mom was a Christian. Not because your pastor told you you're a Christian. How do you know you're a Christian? You simply keep taking one more step toward Christ you simply will not stop you may slow down you may fall you may stumble badly but you will not quit because not only are you persevering verse 2 he's preserving you which is what's told to us at the end of chapter 12 part one looking unto Jesus part two run the race today part three verse two fixing our eyes on Jesus here's our key phrase The author and perfecter of faith. The author and perfecter of faith. What does that mean? And why does it matter? I asked in the first sermon in this series, how would your life be different if this paragraph were not in the Bible? And then I asked positively, how is your life different because this paragraph is in the Bible? I do believe it's the apex of the Himalayas of Scripture. There are other apexes that tell us who Christ is and what He's done. That reveal the character of God and the nature of man. That reveal things from eternity past and future. But there are few passages that in such a condensed way give to us the Christian life. So I ask again, how is your life different? Because this paragraph is in the Bible. Particularly that phrase, Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Today we'll see three things. Responsibility, intimacy, and surety. But before we dive into those, let me tell you where we're going. God willing, next Sunday, part four, we'll look at Jesus enduring the cross, despising the shame. His suffering, His shamelessness, and the fact that He's the Savior. Then, the Lord gives us length of days. We'll look in part five at Jesus enduring the cross for the joy set before Him. The sustaining power of everlasting joy. If you and I believe heaven is real, it will affect the way we live today. And finally, part six. Jesus seated at the right hand of God. The finished work of Christ and the final destination of the Christian. With God. By Christ's merits forever. Well, today let's look at responsibility, intimacy, and surety as we consider Jesus as the author and perfecter of faith. Because some haven't been here, I would like for you just to look at the passage and let your eyes fall on those two verses. And let me just show you how it shakes out and where our phrase fits. The point of the passage, verse 1, is run the race. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus. That's the point. Run the race, looking unto Jesus. But we're told, if you'll just let your eyes fall on it, verse 1, why should we run? Because of the cloud of witnesses. How shall we prepare? Laying aside all hindrances. How will we keep the pace? Running with endurance. That's all verse 1. Verse 2, the main point, looking, fixing your eyes, gazing upon, beholding Jesus. Verse 2, look at it. Who is He? The author and perfecter of faith. What has He done? He endured the cross. How did He endure such humiliation? He despised the shame. What was he pardon me, how was he enabled to endure such torture because of the joy set before him, and where is he now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God? Well, look back now that you know where our phrase lands and how it fits. And let your eyes just fall on it one more time. Verse two: fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith. I really have one point of exegesis, unpacking. What does that mean? And then I have other points of implications and applications. If that is true, so what? So really the first point is the only point and the other points are this is how it should land on us. But we're going to stop between each one, have concerts of prayer, So I'm asking you, take the sponge, put it in this bucket, let the Holy Spirit grab it like a conveyor belt and throw you into the throne room of God. When we pray, we're not praying to impress each other. We're praying so that everybody gets to that throne room. Number one, I told you we'd look at responsibility, intimacy, and surety. Number one, author and finisher of our faith tells us about Christ's responsibility. Underline Christ's responsibility. Not ours. He is the author. He is the perfecter of faith. Some people, among us even, are the kinds of people that are really good at seeing a big project all the way from its inception to its completion and all the minute details involved. I love watching, uh, who Pastor Brian prayed for a moment ago, Pastor Jim, problem solve. His wife is extraordinarily good at it. They are a pair made in heaven. Jim, as you guys know, many of you, is a project manager for a big construction firm, builds big, expensive buildings, and we got other brothers in the church who do similar kinds of work. He, Jim and, and I tease often about the way Jim's brain works. He chairs our elders which means he plans and leads all of our elders' meetings. And a big part of the reason he does that is because he would be frustrated to no end if someone else did it because we can't do it like he does it. He just has a brain that works like that. So the way Jim and I tease when we were in India on this most recent trip, uh, you, you constantly run into stuff in the third world that you could never have anticipated. You don't pack for it. It's not on the agenda. It just, there it is, and you just... Figure it out. But Jim, you know, like the matrix thing. It's like this digital screen that you can just take stuff and move it. That's the way Jim's brain works. So constantly, uh, Jim and I'll make eye contact. And I can just see his wheels go. And I'm just like, you're doing one of these, right? You're just figuring it out. My sister-in-law is one of those kinds of people. She's amazingly competent. She's one of those get-her-done kind of people. We just spent a few days with them uh, Thursday and Friday. Of this week down in Louisiana. She and my brother just built a new house. For the third time. About a decade ago. When they started this house building. uh, Escapade. She decided that she didn't want to pay. The contractor fees anymore. She thought it was too much markup. So my sister-in-law. Who's just self-taught average person. Went and got her contractor license. And she built all three of those houses herself. But she hasn't done it. According to all the other subcontractors, framers, foundation people, brickers, so forth, she hasn't done it like any of the other contractors do it. She, with her one and two year old son at the time of the first building, sat in the driveway while the people worked on the house to ensure that they didn't take too long of breaks and that they did everything according to the blueprint that the architect had drawn under her careful watch. She made sure everything happened according to plan. And on time. She's just one of those people who just knows how to get it done. And when she gets it done, it's done extraordinarily well. There's your illustrations as best I could think of them to try to get you to look at Jesus. He's in a category that is not comparable to any other category. In fact, you can't even take an earthly illustration and say it's kind of like this. Unless you just want to touch the fringe of the garment. He's so competent and qualified and committed to seeing the job done that if he were to fail to do it, he would cease to be God. And because he's committed to his own glory, he will therefore never fail to fulfill this office, which is the whole reason you are saved. This matters. He is the author and finisher of faith. He is the beginning, he is the middle, and he is the end. To use the language from the passage, any true Christian will be able to say from the bottom of their soul, Jesus began my salvation. Jesus is the object looking unto Jesus. And Jesus is the perfecter, the culmination of my salvation. Let's look at Him as author. Faith is a gift from God. It's not natural to you. And Jesus is the author of it. Many of you have memorized in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Faith is a gift from God, and here we find out which person of the Trinity gives it. Yes, the Spirit. Yes, God the Father. But right here in verse 2, we find that Jesus Himself is the author of of true saving faith Romans 12 underlines the same truth verse 3 do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather in accord with the amount of faith that God has given to you giving saving faith is Jesus's job to use an analogy which falls short think about book authors and contracts the way it works if you didn't know is an author that so-and-so publishing company thinks will sell books well contacts author so-and-so and and asks them to consider writing a book on said subject or said author writes a chapter and submits it to publishing company. And if publishing company thinks that they can uh, market that resource in a way that's going to be profitable, they'll give them a contract before they finish writing the book. Sometimes even before they start the book. Jesus will write the manuscript that he puts his pen to. There are many authors who get writing block and never finish. Christ begins a work, signs it with His own blood, guaranteeing that the outcome will be what He set out to achieve. Jesus is the beginning of all saving faith. Charles Spurgeon said, there are many ways to Jesus But Jesus is the one way to God. Have you met God in Christ? Are you playing church? Is He the author of your salvation? Not only author, we're told in this text, New American Standard says perfecter. What does that mean? Jesus is the perfecter of faith. Some translations, yours may say finisher. Finisher. Though we will will always believe the gospel. We sing it here all the time, different hymns and choruses that talk about, and on that day when freed from sinning, so forth, we'll still hope in Christ. The man at God's right hand, Jesus the Lord, is the only Savior for time and eternity. Once we step into heaven, we will not cease to need Jesus as our mediator between God and men. We will be sinless. But we will still need him as our representative. In that sense, we will always believe, if you will, the gospel. But you know 1 Corinthians, right? Now abide these three. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why? I'm not the first person to say it's because love will endure forever. You will never stop growing in love to God. You will never stop growing in love to your fellow man, which newsflash is the evidence that you're saved. You continue to grow in love to God. You continue to grow in love to God's people. You will never stop growing in love to God and His people ever. But when you see Him, when you stand face to face with the mediator who was risen for your justification, Romans 4.24, when you see Him, when you hold Him, when you do what Thomas did and grab His glorified hand and put your hand into His wounded side, when you see the prince on His brow and the prince in His hands and feet, when you realize that your redemption was won by works, but it was His works and not your own, when you hold Him, when you embrace Him, You won't need the same kind of faith anymore. Faith will be dissolved into sight. Hope will be dissolved into reality. And love will abound. Jesus begins our faith. You didn't have it until He gave it to you. It's a gift. You didn't generate it. You didn't work it up. He gave you the gift of faith. And He guarantees upon receipt that He will continue your faith Until He perfects it. Until He finishes it. That's simply His job. And He will never fail to do His job. Let's take four or five minutes and just give Him praise. As you're led to pray, please stand where you're at and the brothers will find you. God Almighty, as we seek Your face, let our souls dip down now as a sponge into the bucket of His limitless fullness, respond to You with thanksgiving and with faith. Father, we do thank You and praise You for Christ. We agree that He is altogether perfect, different, incomparable. Nothing compares. No one compares. We thank You for Him, and we thank You for the faith that you've granted us. We praise your great name because of Christ, who he is and what he's done for us. We praise you that you are faithful even when we are faithless for you cannot deny yourself. Christ, we give you praise and glory because you are the author and perfecter of our faith and that our faith is not Resting in our own merits, but is entirely owing to you. We do thank you that there will be a time where faith and hope will dissolve all the way up into to love. And God, we pray that even now that you would increase our love towards you. You're worthy and you're able. And we believe that you've set out uh, not just to bring our faith to completion, but to bring our love to its climax. And we're praying that you would do that in us today, that you would increase our faith. Yes, but that you would increase our love towards you. We pray in your name.
1: Father, we also thank you that we who are sinners and lost as we could be, that you chose to set your love upon us and you gave us a gift. You gave us Yourself and you died on the cross, enduring the shame uh, for the joy set for us that we have that joy. We now have joy beyond belief because we have been given the gift of faith. And I pray that you would increase our love to you, would you cre- increase our faith that we may continue to know and love you, Jesus Christ, above all things? Amen. Jesus, now.
0: Amen. And we ask now that you would again aid by your spirit our contemplation of your word so that we would join you in being dazzled with Christ. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. I told you that our first point was to unpack the meaning author, finisher, author, perfecter tried to do that, and now I want to draw out implications, applications, what would it look like for this truth to land on our souls, and again, we'll pause for prayer after each. The evidence that He has given you faith, how do you know if you've been given the gift of faith? Well, you don't have to wring your hands and wonder if you're a recipient of the gift. The evidence that He's given you faith is that all of it will land On the risen Jesus. For the fulfillment of all of God's promises to you. Including eternal life. Your hope will be entirely outside of yourself on another. Namely Jesus. For your everlasting redemption. That's the evidence that he gave you faith. When he gives you faith. He attaches the golden chain to it. And he pulls it back to himself. The implications of that. Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Notice that it is, does not say of my faith or of our faith. We're talking about all true faith. He is the beginner of that and He is the completer of that. Second, I told you this book tells us something about Christ's intimacy. His vicinity, His proximity, His, proximity, his nearness. Where is Jesus? Yes, Verse 2, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But true saving faith not only begins and ends with the work of Christ, it happens, author, image, with the pen in his hand the entire time. Not from some far off place, but closer to you than your next breath. More near to your soul than the beat of your heart. He is near to His people. That's what author and finisher speaks of. Matthew 28.20 Behold, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's never forsaken His people. You've lived every waking and every sleeping moment right in front of Jesus of Nazareth, the Sovereign King of the universe. He never leaves His people. He never leaves His people. Our point is, our implication is, this tells us about intimacy. Romans 8 says in verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, not just Spirit of God, not just Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. 1 Peter 1 says even the Old Testament saints, particularly the ones that were writing the 39 books of the Old Testament, they were moved, they were carried along according to the Spirit of Christ who was in them. He's close to His people. He's closer to you than you are to you. Hebrews 2. What about in times of serious temptation? What about when you feel like Jesus doesn't want to smile on you because all hell seems to have broken loose on your life? What about when the devil, the demons, and your own sin nature come to attack? Hebrews 2.18 For since Jesus Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid, literally nearness, of those who are tempted. Jesus is closer to you when you're tempted. Not further from you when you're tempted. He's able to come to the aid, the rescue, the help, the buttress of those who are tempted. He wants to get into that with you. Draw near to him. The Greek word for author archagon. It's used four times in the New Testament. Only one other time in the book of Hebrews. Many times people translate it pioneer. He is the pioneer of our faith. Told you Tracy and I went to Louisiana this week, and the same thing happened that happens every single time my family gets in the car, or Tracy and I are on a long drive except for the 92% of the time she's unconscious. She sleeps a lot. When she's awake, and we're making these long drives, every time we have the same conversation. And I love it. She looks out her window, and she starts imagining what must it have been like when the early settlers discovered this chunk of the United States. And for everywhere you look, There's just trees, forest, hills, mountains, wherever we're at, rivers, so forth. Lewis and Clark, the early American explorers, early 19th century, crossed the Mississippi River 1804 near St. Louis. And after they crossed the mighty Mississippi, they made their way west and north to the Continental Divide. And after traversing the Rocky Mountains and crossing the Continental Divide, they eventually found themselves on the western seaboard in the Pacific Ocean. They pioneered. They were able to go back, get people to come with them. I'm telling you, when it feels like the forest, the mountains, the valleys, the rivers, the oceans, the impenetrable obstacles are right in front of you, and there's no way that you can keep going with Jesus, I want to say to you, good. He's got you right where He wants you. Because He gets near to His people, and He mows down a pathway so that you can keep walking with Him. How did the early settlers do it? I don't have a clue. How does Jesus do it? He knocks down any and every obstacle in front of His people. The Old Testament says in Psalms and other places, He raises up the valleys. He brings down the mountains. He gives you a smooth path. He's that close to you! That's an implication of Him being the author and finisher of your faith. The point is, Jesus is really, 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 really wonderful. And if you'll look at Him... If you'll fix your eyes on Him. Don't look at the obstacles. Don't be Peter on top of the waves. Look at Jesus. You take your eyes off Jesus, you sink. You look at Christ, He carries you. The other two times this word is used in the book of Hebrews. I didn't even tell you the one in Hebrews. There it's in chapter 2, verse 10. It was fitting for Jesus, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. You see it? Carrying many people to glory, to protect, to pardon me, perfect the pioneer of their salvation through suffering. He's bringing us to glory. I love that word. So I preached two sermons on that phrase nine years ago, six years ago. He's bringing us to glory, and to do it, he's pioneering our salvation. That's Hebrews two ten. The other two times it's used are in the book of Acts, and it's just glorious. I can't not read these two verses. It's translated Prince. Acts 3.15 You put to death the Prince of life. The One whom God raised from the dead. A fact to which we are all witnesses. Acts 5.31 He is the One on whom... Let me back up. He is the One whom God exalted to His right hand as a Prince and a Savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. He is the archagon. He is the pioneer. He is the author. He is the prince. He started your faith. He's its author. He's mowing down all the obstacles to your faith in Him. He's the pioneer. And He presently rules over your faith. He is your prince. He is your captain. But also, perfecter. With the pen in His hand, He is completing the manuscript. You can use whatever phrase you want to use. Some are more and some less helpful, I think. Once saved, always saved. Eternal security. Whatever you want to call it. Perseverance of the saints, if you will. All those strike a deficient note in different ways. When you look at the biblical record, I do believe all of them are true. I just don't believe they frame it the best way. My faith doesn't depend on me perfecting it. I just simply have to put every ounce of it in the One who will. Jesus is the perfecter of true salvation. If you take the mustard seed of your faith and put it on the right object and the person with a boatload of faith puts it in the wrong object, you're saved, they're lost. Jesus is the perfecter of faith. And He will keep us to the end. Let's take a few minutes and give Him glory for being close to us. For beginning and ending our faith and walking with us as the pioneer through it all. You stand and the brothers will find you with the microphone. Let's bow and seek the Lord's face together. Two or three, maybe four, offer Him thanks.
2: We thank You that You are the ever-present God among us. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us in. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. And Lord, we thank you and praise you for it. And Lord, we look forward to the day when your presence is even more a reality in our life, Lord, where we sit at your throne and give you the praise and the glory that's due your name.
0: Father, you glorify your people by using us as living stones in the building that you're building. And you even give us things to do by which we may lend support to one another and build each other up. But Lord God, you have not made us the the superintendent, the contractor, the one who is in charge of the whole project. We thank you that this, this edifice that is going up will be worthy of representing your glory to us all because the builder is Christ and he will finish the project. We thank you for this. And Father, we praise you that you give us the truth, Lord, That is Christ in us, our only hope of glory. And, again, you say, I have been crucified with
2: Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Lord, how near can you get? You live in us. Lord, let us live this,
0: our uh, truth that you give us. Let us rejoice in it. Let us find ourselves always uh hugging you as it is, and enjoying you because you are in us. Those whom you give faith, the gift of faith, you live in us. And Lord, for this we praise you for being so near.
3: God, we call out to you on your word. We we acknowledge that it is possible for the seed to land and then with joy spring up only to be choked out. We know that we can enjoy the precious things of the Spirit and then fall away not to be restored to repentance. We know that we can, for our love of Christ, escape the defilement that is in the world and then lose our repentance to an extent it would be better for us to have never known it. Second Peter. Lord, we acknowledge all of these things and right now say, that they are always a present possibility for everyone in this room. And so with that being true, we pray that you would make us desperately dependent to abide on you, that our confidence of John 15, that apart from you, you we can do nothing, and that it is your good pleasure not only to discipline us, but to prune the branches. For those of us in the room, confessionally myself, who find clinging to Jesus so difficult, I pray that would give us all the more confidence that he's sufficient. For those who don't feel that desperation, Lord, I ask that you would humble us and make us thirsty for the water that you give without price. And Lord, we ask that you would do this in such a way that, in the words of Thomas Brooks, that we would be more internally sincere than externally glorious. Desperately needing the Christ that we come and claim. That we would finish in such a way that the preeminence of Jesus over all things would be the clearest indication of our
0: finishing. Amen. Amen. Lord, You've heard our cry. We submit all our deep desires for Your honor at the feet of Your throne. And pray again that You would show us Jesus and all that You are for us in Him, if we will but believe. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The responsibility is Jesus's. He's the author. He's the finisher. The intimacy is guaranteed. He doesn't write a book from a trillion miles away. He has the pen in His hand. The quill is dipped in His own blood. And He's mowing down every obstacle to bring you safely home. He is with you. Finally, we've touched on it in ways. We just want to say it explicitly and then assault the throne room in light of it. This tells us about surety, guarantee, promise. Christ's surety. Others have used this illustration of the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea. I wonder what that must have been like. There they were, hemmed in. After they reluctantly uh, left Egypt, though not without much divine intervention, the Passover, the death angel had come through the camp at midnight and slain the firstborn male in every household of the Egyptians. Those who had the blood sprinkled on their doorpost and lentil were spared. It's a picture of the gospel, Christ passing over because he took the wrath that we deserved. And those who were spared eventually left Egypt. You know the story. But when they finally made their way to the Red Sea, they were hemmed in. Because Pharaoh, who said, Now get out. Now leave. After Moses had demanded that he let God's people go. Now get out. Now leave. Pharaoh had a second opinion. And he decided that he would bring his armies after Israel when they were helpless in the wilderness. He would pinch them. Against the boundary of the sea, and then he would slaughter them. We're told that in the account in Exodus, when that moment occurred, as Israel came near uh, me, as Egypt came near and Israel knew that they were doomed, we're told that the angel of the Lord moved from in front of them and became their rear guard, positioning himself between Israel, his people and Egypt, their enemy. But it doesn't say God left the front. It says He became their front and their rear guard. And then we're told, as Moses stuck the staff into the sea, you know the account, the water split. What you might need to think through to be helped by that passage, that historical experience that actually happened, not make-believe, not fairy tale, is that, Best guesstimates are Israel at the time was one and a half million souls marching shoulder to shoulder in numbers however wide and deep. Lots and lots of people crossing through that water. Dry ground where the water was. And as they're crossing, the illustration goes like this. Some of them, maybe in your family, are looking at the walls of the water and they're like, our God is awesome! Look what our God does. Look how He saves His people. Nobody can stop our God. Look what He's doing back there to Egypt. Holding them off until we cross. Only to lure them in so He can crush them. Look how great our God is. Isn't our God amazing. Our God is saving us. And the others who are walking right beside Him, are like, oh man, do you see that water? Do you, see what, do you know what's going to happen to us if that falls on us? But all of them are making it through. All of them are making it through. This salvation is guaranteed. And you will be served very well to get your eyes off the water and put them on the guarantor. Evidence that you're a Christian is that you keep moving. Not that you're not sometimes scared. Wars without fears within. You might be moved to bone-jarring trembling today. You might have walked in this room with not one... Shred of what felt like assurance of your salvation. Look away from yourself and look on to Christ. He who began a good work in you, Philippians 1, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, verse 7, on this Louisiana car ride, Tracy's reciting to me her memory work, and she gets to chapter 2, verse 7. And it just lodges in me again. She goes on to a few other verses and I go back and say, what about verse 7? You know Ephesians 2.7? He saved us by grace. He raised us up with Christ. Why did He do it? Why did He do it? In order that in the ages to come, He might make known to you what are the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. He saved you because He determined before He saved you that He wanted to show you how kind He is for all eternity. He will not stop that work. This is sure. Many of us today are thinking about the SCOTUS decision that was handed down this week and it was already prayed about in our service and I think that's about probably the appropriate attention to give to it. I'm not riddled with anxiety and fear. I'm not trying to get our America back. I don't think God was ever interested in giving us our America in the first place. We're now in company with the majority of Christians in Church history. Religious liberty was a pipe dream and is for most who have been in Christ for most of the centuries. But maybe a word or two would be helpful. The decision of Burgerfell versus Hodges, you know, legalizing same sex unions nationwide. Here's what I would want to say today. A bunch of other things could be said. Maybe down the road we'll try to say some. But this is what I want to say. We love our neighbors. Every one of them. I don't know one person on planet Earth more sinful than me. This is a safe place for people to ask honest questions. God has already told us the end of the story. And for those who might be saying the us and the them, it might be helpful to remember that God forbids everyone from acting out on every sexual impulse that you may have, including heterosexual ones. God is sovereign. This doesn't change one thing about where Jesus sits, what kind of rule and authority He has, what kind of commands He has on His people. His word doesn't change. And He minces no words in talking to us about the union of husband and wife. Last thing I would like to say about surety of salvation and some are wondering, oh no, oh no. Not to caricature you or anybody else or just to say definitively. Christ died and rose again. That's a fact. And He did it to do a whole lot of things. But one of the things the Bible tells us He died and rose again to do was to present to Himself his bride. That's why marriage exists. To present to Himself His bride in purity, and holiness, and blamelessness without reproach. And that bride, what I'm trying to say to you in this sermon, author and finisher of our faith, that bride will be brought safely home by the power of Christ whose blood and righteousness is all our redemption. Nothing, no Supreme Court, no king, no judge, no president, no parent, no child, no one will stop that fact from being fulfilled. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. 1 Timothy 1, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The local church, Grace Church, must be a place where all sinners help all other sinners fight our sin by looking to Jesus, believing the Gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. We said last week, everybody in the Christian race knows they're in the Christian race in part because they're looking to Jesus, but we said last week, because they want everybody in the race to win the race. If you're ready to kick somebody when they're down, I'd like to know what race you're running. Jeremy Walker... British author, one of my favorites, said, Christ did not come to make sinners savable, but to actually save them. He did not merely open a door for salvation. He carried His people through it. Let us be confident, Christ's death saves His people perfectly, entirely, utterly, surely. Everything the penitent sinner needs is in Christ Jesus. Whoever turns to Him in faith will be delivered from sin with all of its guilt and punishment and power and will be saved with God's so great salvation redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Well, in conclusion, and before our final little concert of prayer, let me just say the author and finisher of our faith, that's the one we're to look to. He has a name. Jesus. Look to Him. Gaze on Him. Behold Him. I'm not talking about mystical, sentimental, feel-good, fuzzy religion. I'm talking about Jesus, which is His earthly name. His incarnate name. He wasn't called Jesus until Matthew 1, so far as I can tell. But when He came, and became incarnate, and took on flesh and blood, for us men and for our salvation as the old writers say it or hebrews 2 he took on flesh and blood because his brethren shared in that so that he could make propitiation for our sins this jesus who bore that name during his incarnation and retains that name for all eternity look at him what I'm saying is, look at the Savior. Don't look at a mystical, sentimentalized religious idea. look at Jesus, the concrete expression of the image of God. If you see Jesus, you see God. Look at him. One day, seated on a throne made out of something better than the Earth's material could, could house. You're going to see a man, maybe five foot eight, maybe six foot two? I don't know but you're going to see a person look at Him. His fiery eyes, Revelation chapter 1, will burn through all the chaff. And every precious metal will stand. And the only precious metal that will stand is faith in Him and in His finished work at Calvary. Christ makes Christians. That's the most simple way I know how to say it. Christ makes Christians. If you don't want Christ, you don't want Christianity. Christ makes Christians. What He did at Calvary and the empty tomb. A Christ-centered life is simply the evidence that you are one. Or we could say from this text, it is the evidence. Jesus at the center of your whole life. You don't have to so much figure out who to marry, where to live, where to work, where to go to church. You look at Jesus and try to figure out how that applies to every area of your life. Don't look at work, marriage, job, whatever. Look at Jesus. As you look at Jesus, you draw all the implications out into every arena. The Christ-centered life is the evidence that Christ is the captain of your salvation. I never cease to be amazed when stuff like this happens. But at Ten o'clock or so this morning, one of my friends who, by the way, used to be the pastor of this church and stood right here, one of my friends, a Union Avenue Baptist pastor formerly, texted me this morning and said, this is from today's June 28th entry in Charles Spurgeon's morning and evening. Today's. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of His children. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus. Spurgeon continues, All these are thoughts about self. And we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ, as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of thy faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. Keep thine eyes simply on Him. Let His death, His sufferings, His merits, His glories, His intercession be fresh upon Thy mind. When Thou wakest in the morning, look to Him. When Thou layest down at night, look to Him. Oh, let not Thy hopes or fears come between Thee and Jesus. Follow hard after Him and He will never fail Thee. Then He cites, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean. On Jesus' name. Let's again seek the face of our God. Who guarantees that He will finish the work that He begins. Father, as we pray. We pray that you would take the next few moments. And happy our heart. In the Savior who promises to keep us for Himself to the end.
1: Lord, I praise you for your
3: kindness toward us, the way that you've expressed it in your word.
1: And Lord, all we want to do is look to Jesus. Praise you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.
0: God, we thank you for the truth of Matthew 1 and the accomplishment of our salvation that Jesus will save His people from their sins. Not that He might, but that He will
1: save us from our sins. So we praise You for our Savior Christ. In His name we pray. How beautiful You are to us, Jesus, and there is no blemish in You.
3: It's truth that Abraham believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. We praise you, for the glorious truth of salvation through faith in Christ by grace alone, that you have chosen to count us righteous in accordance with faith because it is the only thing by which that you could extend to us righteousness and it not be a reward for works done in the flesh. And so we ask that you would help us to stand firm to trust in Christ alone. For if righteousness could be gained by the law. Christ died for nothing. But we know that Christ has indeed died. To extend to us righteousness. He is our hope. He is our peace. And he is all sufficient to give us all we need. To complete. And to be completely clean
1: before you. Jesus you said. I will put my trust in him. And again I am. And the children that God has given to me. God, Jesus, we praise you that because of your doing, we put our trust in God. In Psalm 28, it says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am help. Therefore, my heart exalts. And with my song, I shall give Him thanks. The Lord is my strength, and he is the saving defense to his anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. Father, we thank you for the promise that you will carry us and you will never let us go. Christ, you alone are worthy to be praised. Oh
2: God, you say that anyone that loves the things of the world, that the love of the Father is not in them. So, God, I pray that as your people, that you would finish what you began in us. God, we know that you are, uh, we can be confident of that very thing, that you who began the good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So, as your people, I pray that we would look off of the things of the world and set our mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Father, we would fix our hope completely on the grace that has been brought to us at the revelation of Christ Jesus, that we would fix our gaze upon Christ and be transformed into his image by the power of the Holy Spirit as we do so. God, we know this is true of each one of us because you say it is. So, God, our hope is in you. Our trust is in you. We know that you are the, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we praise you that it is not up to us, that we have no reason to boast whatsoever. Our boast is in Christ and in his cross, in his finished work and what he's done. That's where our salvation lies. So God praise you for the glorious work of the gospel in us. Thank you, God.